0: I am Michael Perlet. I am Asher Collins. And together we bring you Exercise Equals Life podcast.
1: Thank you, David Otey, for coming on the Exercise Equals Life podcast.
0: Of course. I appreciate you guys having me on absolutely so again um what i wanted to hit right away because i think it's the most intriguing thing of everything i looked at your cv you know your credentials are impressive all of that good stuff and i salute you for that but jumps off the page is because i'm a word guy sure uh those are potent choices of words the the mass destruction of education and exercise science and that tells me your opinion and also your level of passion. And that's really what I want to give you a forum for. Like, what what exactly does that mean to you? And then what sort of solutions do you see to rectify it? Sure. So I think that's a
2: great, uh, it's a great question. And I agree. Like, this is definitely a field that I am very passionate about. And I have been lucky enough to have mentors who are way smarter than me and way more equipped than I am in order to show me the light of both sides of everything. So a lot of my background comes through, you know, really having strong mentors in academia. Mm -hmm. Um, My first big mentor in academia was Dr. Sean Arendt, who is the current chair at University of South Carolina, but was my professor at Rutgers University when I went there. Um, And he's, um, you know, plays multiple roles within the NSCA. He was the president for uh, ISSN for a while, and he's, you know, been nothing but a great mentor and friend to me and end up introducing me to Dr. Brad Schoenfeld, who has been one of my most recent mentors for the last, I would say six, seven years. And I've had you know, the benefit to present for his, um, his classes on a semester basis on my experience and what I've done and what I've been involved with. So when I talk about the mass destruction or mass erosion of the quality of education that happens out there, that's mainly from a continuing education portion because from what I've seen is there's been a massive divide in the types of education that go out there, it's either super academia, or Mm -hmm. it is very, very social media streamlined. And there's no in between on that, where we're focusing on the practicality of things and how I can manage the session. And, you know, from what I've seen over the years of going to my first conferences in, you know, 2010, 2011, 2013, to now, is it's, there's lacking a in the trenches field to what's going on it's more theory of hey wouldn't this be cool instead mm-hmm. of navigating coaches on how to use best practices within these scenarios because the fact of the matter is is most people that start out as trainers don't finish mm-hmm. out as trainers and there's a huge divide in the continuation within being a personal trainer or a strength coach or exercise science in general because it's just so damn difficult. And we talk about all these cool, fantastical things, but we don't talk about the real stuff that actually happens within those hours, managing clients, getting people involved, how to you know, really navigate that communication level, You know, what do I focus on in the immediate future? So when I talk about the mass erosion of that, I think that it's like there's been a huge divide within the type of education that's out there. It's either super academic, that's high level and may go over the heads of a lot of people, or right. it's very, very low level, where it's not that it's not helpful, but it might not be as practical as necessary for the coach that really is looking to make this into a long-term career. Got it.
1: I definitely agree. And um, Actually, going back to NSCA, and you mentioned Dr. Sean Arendt, I had the privilege to hear from him at the NSCA Coaches Conference a couple weeks ago in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, He's an amazing presenter, so you can definitely see some resemblance between you and him want to
0: make that comment. Well, just I appreciate back, that. Backing into this a little bit, so you know, I'm an occupational therapist by profession. And uh, as I got to know Michael, and we started comparing, you know, I tell him it's not the kindest way of putting things. But uh, like I said, I'm the bad mentor. I said, I swim through a sea of stupidity every day, and it's just the most singular <laughs> frustrating thing. It really, really is. I'm like, I, I do my job. Yeah. Why aren't you doing your job? 100%. You know, so um, but in talking to him, cover your ears, I'm going to blow your ego up. I realized I was in the presence of a terrific brain, and I love that. That is so huge because I'm a, natu- I'm a natural mentor. I mentor uh, PhD and, and master's level students here. Uh, I work in outpatient. Uh,
1: Getting back to the educational aspect. Though. I'm
0: going there, yeah. My point with Michael was your profession needs to level up because I see as a clinician application in my outpatient setting in collaboration with physical therapy, OT, nursing. So like, and in starting that conversation, we have discovered together a real lack of coherence, even at the academic level of exercise science versus exercise physiology as degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, I answered the AOTA you know, there's no organizational singular body. It's a little all over the map. Sure, and sure. we've been chewing like dogs on bones trying to figure out how to, you know, get this. And it is a profession. At, at the level you guys are at, it is absolutely a profession. Um, how does that garner the licensure, recognition, registration that it deserves so we can take its place in healthcare as well as in the larger general population in more lifestyle type settings. I just think it's underexploited because it lacks a coherence. Like, what are we? It lacks, def- you know what I'm saying? It lacks a definition.
2: Well, and I think with that to that point, I think that one of the biggest skills in the conversation are the coaches themselves. And I don't mm. mean that by, you know, saying that trainers are purposely doing this. But you know, I also have the privilege of being able to mentor a lot of coaches that are starting out or trying to re- redefine their business or whatever. And the big thing that I've seen through years of working with ind- individuals is personal trainers are very quick to call themselves strength coaches or movement specialists or these mm-hmm. other things instead of owning the name personal trainer. And it's because there's a mass difference between the person that goes for the weekend certification and doesn't really do continuing education and the coach that has a degree and has, you know, positioned themselves to be very passionate about the education and the wellness for their clients. That's a a vast difference in that. So what I would say is uniquely different about being a personal trainer is there are many, many doors to get in and they don't all necessarily take the same path. And, you know, I think especially in health and fitness, you know, no matter what the discipline is, mm-hmm. um, we usually do ourselves the biggest disservice because we're trying to make our voice so loud that we're not willing to have that communication in order to make sure that there's a unified voice on the things that we do have in common. So to your example, you know, where there's different organizations, what they do is they try and highlight, here's how, what's different with us. Here's how we think differently. Instead of all the organizations coming together going, okay, well, here are the key staples of things that we all agree on. Here are the things that are resonating tenets, no matter which one you choose. These are our finite things that we believe in as an industry, as a community, et cetera. Right. So, you know, I think that, you know, I, I've seen someone else in the past say it, and I forgive them for not remembering who it was to give them credit. But, you know, when we always hear about bridging the gap between training and OT and training and PT and training and this, mm-hmm. the bridge has been there. You're yeah. either going to walk over it or you're not. Correct. So, it 's important that, as coaches, if you actually want to create some of these relationships with people that are like minded and and care as much about physiology as as you do and care about the clients the way that you do, that you should get to know them and go out of your way to make sure you can make those connections and and find the things that are very collective in nature about all of them so for example, on a side little uh project uh, i 'm lucky enough to do a lot of stuff with men 's health magazine and one of the things I've wanted to do for a long time was have an article on what is fit. Because with fitness, I can ask a marathon runner and they'll tell me what their definition is, which is different from a bodybuilder, which is different from an everyday athlete, which is different from an Olympian. And they're all different on what their definition of it it is, whether it's from a cardiovascular perspective or how much weight you can lift or whatever. But within those varying things, there's probably five or six resounding lines that are parallel with every single one of those people. And I think for the general consumer, it's important to know what are those five to six things that doctors and trainers and therapists and Olympians and athletes and everyone's all agree on these things matter. Here's what we believe in, because I think that's when you start to move the conversation forward is by identifying what we have alike versus, which is very common in our society now, identifying what we have different. Correct. Different isn't always good. Standing out no. isn't always good. It just means that there's a spotlight on you. So that can be a really good thing or a really bad thing. And Correct. I think we've always turned it into being a not so good thing, especially in this moment in time.
0: Yes, yes. I completely, very, very well said. And you know, what What it boils down to is, um, and Michael and I have spoken about this a lot, and I keep coming back to this word because I think it's just apropos, a lack of coherence in the dialogue. Mm-hmm just a ton of white noise out there. And everyone's talking really loud and really fast. As you said, no one's listening to anything anybody else is saying. So we've recognized the problem. What Michael and I are trying to suss out is to really fix it. Like, how do you start a coherent dialogue? Do you bring in key members, which is my thinking, I'm always shoot for the top. Do you bring in key members from like, I'm just making a number, your top three exercise uh, science and exercise uh, physiologists. Wait,
1: even with that definition, right? Exercise scientists, exercise physiologists. Those degrees. Look at the different major organizations within our respective fields and they're all labeled differently, right? There's a certified exercise physiologist, there's a clinical exercise physiologist, right. but the education doesn't kind of match the output. Um, myself, right? Currently going for an exercise science degree he takes it at a different college in New Jersey, it could be exercise physiology. It may be health and human performance at, at the third university. So until there's some sort of established- you know, Norm. Formal education, norm, yeah. It's really tough to even sit for any exam because if I'm an, an exercise physiologist from the American College of Sports Medicine, well, great, but what does that mean then? What job do I have to go to, right? I can be a personal trainer, but with that amount of knowledge, what role am I
0: really filling? them? so David, do you ever see, like, uh, if you will, an in-house conference where, like I said, you get key members from these organizations that are currently working to accredit academic programs? And I think there's three, um, and just really getting them around the table, metaphorically, and be like, okay, again, I love what you're saying. I agree with you. There are there are five or six core things that, whether you're a cardiothoracic surgeon or a personal trainer, we're all going to agree upon, come under the definition of of human, right? And then start a dialogue within those to to say, okay, you can retain your individuality, but there has to be one governing organization with substructures under it that that will allow specialization, if you will.
1: Yeah, I don't know.
0: Go ahead. Sorry. I'm sorry. So that you're either, I mean, I, I think this profession needs to be, as mine is, as Rich, you know, my, my business partners is, he's a, he's a PT, needs to be, a, you know, a licensed, registered, recognized profession that can take its place in healthcare, which, by the way, I can tell you, I'm starting three rehab programs, cardiac cancer and diabetes, um, which all need you guys. So there isn't clinical recivitivism. Yeah. Um, and this is where I'm like, Michael, you got to get in here. You know, <laughs> David, you've got to get in here. These people don't even know how they got sick. Yeah. You know, I'm doing my job, but I can't do everything. Um, and I just think it would be insanely, you would fill. you do want to talk about a gap. There is a, a cliff in the continuum of healthcare where you go acute care, subacute inpatient, outpatient, boom. Because yeah. you don't know what you did that got you sick to begin with if it wasn't a traumatic event. Correct, and, and that's where I would love to get you guys positioned in such a way that if you want, if you want to go to that level, you can really elbow to elbow with every other licensed registered profession in healthcare. And I just think the, see, I'm getting passionate. The outcome for the patient would be massive. And the savings from the healthcare, you know, the, 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 everybody talks about Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurance, a billion dollars. Yeah. Guess how much we would be saving if somebody didn't have three strokes? Totally. No, I, we're, we're, we're
2: definitely in agreement on that. Like I, um, one, I think that the action has to come from the individuals and the person that's in there. So, you know, I think there's always not always, but for a long time, there's been a distorted view when it comes to fitness from just simply an aesthetic perspective and not necessarily prioritizing the longevity and health and wellness of an individual. So I think that's, that's just number one, right? Consumer nature, it's much easier to sell a six pack of abs than it is to sell, you know, a lower cholesterol level, just right. by by the nature of what people are willing to <laughs> buy as consumers.
0: I don't have um, a picture of that exactly. <laughs>
2: you know, like so. There's that. I think that training should eventually be a licensure. I definitely agree. I think what that does is it puts a lot of of existing personal trainers on the fence to either choose a side of is this for you or is it not for you? Correct. Like, is this something that you're willing to continue your education towards and work on and stay within these certain guidelines? Or is this not something that seems like a long-term profession for you? Because I think to that note, the general nature that's been personal training is, I have, I have almost met as many people that used to be personal trainers as I have people that are personal trainers. Agreed. You know what I mean? Like the people who, Oh, I I was a trainer a few years back. And I think that's almost, I mean, mostly problematic for the field because you have people that are, you know, maybe part-time passionate about something, but aren't necessarily going to be giving the advice or the continuation of what they're doing. So as a consumer, you may not see it with the same level of regard that you would, a therapist involved. And to that point of the cliff off of outpatient to what's next, I mean, that's something I've had many, many conversations with, with plenty of people. The one I can imagine, I can think of right now is Dr. Justin Farnworth, who I uh, was a colleague of mine with the PPSC. He's a physical therapist based out of Rochester, New York. Mm -hmm. And the biggest issue that he had was he would always say that, you know, the problem is when people come in for physical therapy is they say, I want to get back to where I was. And he goes, and the problem is that's how you got to where you are. So you don't Correct. want to get back to where you were. You want to get back to better than where you were. Correct. You want to figure out what that issue was. And I think it's that that baseline understanding that is very important across the board. So I think training should be a licensed thing You know, in time for sure. I think everyone needs to get on the same page about what are the right ways of going about stuff and what are the general practices. I think some of the problems that come with the licensure is the restriction guidelines of here's what's prescribed based on what other people say you need to do in this situation. So it, it, it mitigates some of the creativity from coach to coach, which isn't the worst thing in the world in certain circumstances, but I do think it's somewhat constricting in certain ways. Mm -hmm. Um, But ultimately I think it's up to us as a community in order to show the benefit of creating those relationships with adjacent professions and colleagues that are in the same boat that care about their clients that care about the well-being of people because ultimately that should be why people are getting into this profession not to wear sweatpants five days a week and work out but it's a perk but it should be to help people you know how am i making a difference in this person's life how am i Helping them not just from a health perspective, but how am I helping them from a longevity perspective, a confidence perspective, a happiness perspective, a social perspective, all those things, they they play a major role into what we would want to consider for that. And one thing I wanted to make sure that I touched on, because you did ask this question first, was I think what we need to do for consumers is we need to stop trying to impress our colleagues and start trying to connect with the people that we actually help. so you know a lot of times we'll talk about oh let's focus on the upward rotation of the scapula it's going this many degrees to this that's adorable but clients don't know what the hell you're talking about so call them your shoulder blades right oh my clavicles are that call them your collarbone your client has no idea like you don't we shouldn't have to create a barrier by speaking you know in the scientific terminology we're talking to colleagues great do that but you don't have to try and impress a client with these types of words or the letters behind your name because the fact is they don't know what that word is and they don't care what the letters are behind your name. You know and what's funny? So
0: you know, in, in getting my degree, that was one of the first things they slammed into. You're like, never, ever with a with a patient or a client, ever use clinical terminology. With so, a peer, uh, yes. Outside of that, no. So yeah, go ahead, sure. Mike.
1: I'm, I'm glad your degree actually went into that. So again. The education standards is different for exercise science and asking to become accredited, there will be more formality in the system. But there's no class that ever coaches the coach, literally coaches a student, the coach, on how to maneuver in the field. So they don't tell you don't don't say the letters after your name, don't name them by the muscle specific. You know, triceps a break guy, there's three heads. You don't need to get into all of that. Not at all. Your point of naming anatomically. But then That's it's almost like that the client the client you're, you're servicing as a personal trainer, almost de- You're almost devalued because they don't know what you know. And there's almost like a blanket, of personal, a blanket over personal training profession. I feel like with a lot of clients, I mean, there are plenty of clients who come to you for your knowledge and you don't express that, but they know you have it. And many, most oftentimes it's left in the shadows. They don't know that you have certain knowledge capacities. David, could you speak to that or?
2: Yeah, I mean what I would say is it's the same quote that I've always told every class at Dr. Schoenfeld's lectures because Brad is known so well for, you know, how much he contributes when it comes to exercise science. I I always used to tell his students and the students at Rutgers that that one of my favorite quotes is the difference between art, uh, artists and intellects or intellects are very good at making simple things sound complicated and artists are very good at making complicated things sound simple. Exactly. My job is to be an artist. My job is to take these very complex you know, mechanisms that happen in the body, whether we're talking about mTOR or GLUT4 transporters or IGF-1 or any of these things, and be able to explain it to my four-year-old niece. Like that's that's the power of when you own the information that's in front of you. Correct. And what I would say is for the coach that wants to show off their chops on what they have, I get it, and there's nothing. there's really nothing wrong with that. Like if I wanted to be my 20-something-year-old self, I'd be, oh, I have my bachelor's degree in exercise science from Rutgers University with a, with a concentration in anatomical physiology and I have a minor in nutrition. No one's ever asked me for my diploma, not once. So like that stuff doesn't necessarily matter, right? right. The information matters and how I can help impart that with someone is right. ultimately what matters. And then even to take that a step further when it comes to the communication, I get frustrated when I hear coaches that want to specifically only talk in scientific terminology because to me, it's like your client speaks English and you're speaking Spanish. And even though you know English, you still have to speak Spanish because you don't have the control to switch over to that different language. And the fact of the matter is, is I don't speak the same language to that person. I could have the best information in the world. It's not going to connect because we're not talking the same dialect. And I think if you, if you can figure out how to communicate a lot better, which is why I think people like Brett Bartholomew play a key role in health and wellness from a communication perspective. And it started out with, you know, me listening to Nick Winkleman years back going over internal versus external cueing and how the communication matters when it comes to some things we're talking about intrinsic areas. And you're talking about power output, maybe external cues are better for that. Like that's where it, it, takes a different conversation, but I think also just taking individual to individual into consideration. How Absolutely. I talk to my 7 a.m. client that has a certain occupation is not the same way that I communicate with my 8 a.m. client who has a different occupation. Yep. Or like I have, you know, for example, my 7 a.m. client is the director of surgical oncology uh, for a hospital system in the area. My 8 a.m. client is a physical therapist in a hospital system. So like for them, I can talk in different ways because to the surgeon, he's more technically sound about certain things, but he may not be as well-versed when it comes to the physiological movement type of terminology, mm-hmm. where it's vice versa for my physical therapist that I work with at 8am versus the 7am. So it's also knowing the audience, like what is the type of conversation that's going to resonate the most with them? Because that's the goal, not how I talk, but in the way that I can communicate, did you so, land
0: the, the, the knowledge? That I think is the best definition of the art of our professions. 100%. We are useless if we don't, if we're not world-class communicators. One hundred percent. And if, if you're out there to get an ego stroke by dazzling people with your knowledge and, and your your terminology, you're going to be adequate at best. So I completely agree with you. This you will make a
2: lot of money, and you'll make less impact.
0: Correct. And I think this is one of the uh, all of it, healthcare and lifestyle and, and training, I think is one of those professions where you really need to get your ego out of it, mm-hmm. you know, which is you know the, the antithesis of what you always hear about it. Oh, these these guys and these women have big egos. No, it's I think- It's easier you know, said than done too. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. So-
1: Yeah, no, it just goes back to, to knowing the theory, theories that exist very well in the scientific literature and just applying it simply.
2: Yeah, it's also knowing that it's not about me. Yeah in the end of the day, that's it. it, Our training session has nothing to do with me. Your results have very little to do with me. Like when, if someone meets a goal and anytime someone says like, oh, you did a great job. I didn't do anything. Like they did all the work. They, they drove the entire way. I just pointed where to turn.
0: Right. Exactly.
2: Sure. I gave some guidance in that, but I didn't, I wasn't the one on the treadmill. I wasn't the one lifting the weights. I wasn't the one pushing past my capacity. So like, I don't, I, I'm not the person to get the praise in that they did all the work. I was just the guide. Correct. And I've been lucky enough to have a lot of trips where I can guide a lot of people in different scenarios. But that's also because I was willing to put myself out there as a younger coach. So when I talk about having mentors early on, I say that from experience because when I was, you know, getting out of college and started training, you, you know, the, the issue with society is like the, uh, you know, it's like the LinkedIn indeed. If you look for a brand new job, it's like, Hey, we're taking entry-level participants must have 10 years experience. Well, that's contradictory, right? Like, especially with new coaches coming out, they're like, Oh, I have a bachelor. I've had this many years of this. Like you were 11 years old when you, or saying you were training and stuff because you had a gym membership. Didn't mean we were training. Right. Which isn't a bad thing. But when I got out, I, I made it a point to volunteer my time in as many scenarios as possible because I couldn't give a lot, but I could give my time. And that's how I was able to sit behind physical therapists and watching that. When I was in college, I, I, uh, volunteered with the exercise science, uh, research lab. That's how I first connected with doctor Arnt before I even had him as a professor was I helped out with research studies. So I was part of a research study on how resistance training affected hemodialysis patients. And I would drive to different uh, members of the study in the New Brunswick, New Jersey area and put them through a 30-minute resistance tra- uh, resistance band training routine. And it would go towards the study. In my sophomore year, I was, a, um, I was part of a student athletic training team for the Rutgers football team. So it was a lot of doing ultrasound and... Uh, wrapping ankles and ice, and seeing the differences within the practicality of that. Working with the strength and conditioning department, like there were a lot of areas that I did that, and I made sure my internships were with inpatient and outpatient physical therapy, mm-hmm. working sports performance rehab type settings, etc. Mainly so I could have a number of different voices that were able to tell me these different stories, so mm-hmm. that I could interpret my own opinion based on all these different manners on what I wanted to do ultimately and what was effective in all these different ways. So I could speak with some confidence on those pathways. Mm -hmm. But that's how, you know, when I started working with my first client that was with cancer, that was uh, in remission from cancer, et cetera, you always have to have that first person. So you have to be willing to know, can I I treat the scenario with the respect that it it deserves Mm -hmm. delicately and ultimately by helping put them in a position to become better or a better version of themselves down the line. But there's always those little things that you'll work with. So if it's your first hip replacement, if it's your first knee replacement, it's whatever. that, We've all had certain levels of education around that. And then you defer to others in areas that you don't know. The biggest mistake right. is trying to make the assumption going, oh, no, I think I can figure this out. If you don't know, you don't know. And no. sometimes the smartest answer is an I don't know. Um, and I it's think that, that goes back to the ego part of like – releasing and saying, it's not about me. So yeah. I, would, I would suggest others to volunteer and give your time as many ways as possible. You will learn a lot more by giving your time versus asking for money everywhere you turn.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I,
1: mean, I definitely agree with that. So for most part, for myself, especially going through undergraduate, uh, completing the graduate degree now, master's in exercise science in Montclair State, I exposed myself to multiple internships mm-hmm. at different sites to get the similar experience you know, to, to, to work with, you know, the clinical population and the sports performance population.
0: It gives you a richer knowledge base to pull from, and I agree. Then you. you know what the best definition of a pro, regardless of profession, that I ever heard of was: a pro knows what he or she absolutely knows, what they absolutely don't know, but where to go find out. Sure. And I have discovered anecdotally that when I go, you know, it's been a while. Let me just do some research, and I'll have an answer for you. you know what I mean? That's yeah. confidence building. As opposed to the winging thing good luck with that. that that wouldn't even cross my mind no so. i used to always tell people like
2: before i had the ATSM's exercise testing and prescription guidelines like mm-hmm. the little booklet that would have the medications in the back of the booklet and tell you what are the contraindications for beta blockers and blood pressure medications etc like when i was i started training when i was 19 years old like officially as a coach training, I used to volunteer at a sports performance clinic when I was 16 to 19 mm-hmm. and I would shadow sessions. Then that's when I realized I wanted to train. It was the first job I ever had where I wasn't staring at the clock. Mm-hmm. And when I started training, I started training at Gold's gym in East Windsor, New Jersey. I used to drive down from Rutgers, drive down the turnpike and train from 5 PM to like 8:30 PM, five nights a week. And when, um, when I was going through that, like to your point, there's a lot of things that you want to try and do. You're ambitious because you want to conquer the world and prove yourself and show what you have. But ultimately I found out that, you know, in those moments, it was a matter of, can I remember these things in time? So I, I've never traditionally been a very organized person, but when it came to that kind of stuff, I was like, I need to be very organized on this. So yeah. if someone came in with medications that they take when it comes to their training, If I didn't know in that moment in time, I'd I'd let them know, I'm going to do the research on this. I'm going to get some background on it, and I will get back to you on what are some of the the things we can do and what are the things we can't do or be aware of. And then I would keep a binder of that where I would print the stuff out at the Alexander Library at Rutgers, and I'd put it into a three-ring binder. And then moving forward, if anyone else took that same kind of medication or whatever, I had information on it because I knew where to go to. It's like the old uh, tale of saying, like, you don't have to own a boat. You need to know someone that owns a boat. Right. So, like for this, it's just, I need to know where to get the information. Correct. Like, especially when it comes to nutritional books, like, okay, I got a nutritional minor. I I can tell you a handful of things that are helpful from a nutritional perspective when it comes to like nuanced phytonutrients and vitamins and minerals and stuff. Right. But I have the book I can reference at any moment in time. And that's, that's the value in it is like knowing where to go and knowing how to navigate that. And if it's not my specialty, I'll defer you to the person that's better at that. I've had plenty of options where people have asked me to be on uh, talk shows. Uh, I've been asked to be on, you know, live with Kelly and Ryan before I've been asked to go in certain books and magazines and do these things that I didn't ultimately do because I'm not the expert in that. Right. I'm either not the expert or I'm not the person that is in full belief of that. So because of it, I'm going to take myself out of consideration. Yeah. Because I learned very early, especially with doing like media type of stuff. Mm. Once you put your name on something, your name's attached to it. And I was not going to exchange, oh, this cool article or whatever for compromising what I say and believe in and do on an everyday basis, Correct. which is so so common and especially for younger coaches can be very, very easy to mistaken for. So what I would say is make sure you take your time and do your due diligence. And if, you don't, if there isn't a system out there that you can refer to, help find that system. If you're not sure about it, Ask a friend or a colleague or a mentor or something. The the reality is, if you have thought of something that could be cool, whether it's a spreadsheet or it's a log or it's an encyclopedia background or whatever, chances are someone's already done it mm-hmm. and they're willing to share it with you. You just have to ask instead of trying to do it from scratch. So after I did the three ring binder from scratch, I realized, oh, in the ACSM uh, exercise testing and prescription book, in the back of it, there's all this kind of stuff. Great. Yeah. I will buy that for $40 and save me the stuff of printing it out and hoping I keep it intact. So what I would say is you have to be willing to understand what your strengths and weaknesses are and you have to be willing to take the extra step in finding the way to defer to this information in the most efficient and effective way possible.
1: So just two things from that very recent scenario, uh, the last gym I was actually currently at before the semester began, Hackensack, Meridian Fitness and Wellness Center in Maywood, there was many clients who had come across with different joint limitations and yes, being a personal trainer, you know, really can't diagnose her. But I can do visual assessments and one client presented with a joint issue where he couldn't elevate above 90 degrees. So parallel with the floor, but he didn't present that as such. He came in saying, I can't press 30 pounds over my head below 30 pounds. I'm fine above 30. I'm not able to, so I'm a little confused at first, but took it with a grain of salt and consider what, what we can do. Took him through a movement assessment, standards and standard assessment, and the issue presented itself. But I wanted to reference the literature, the scientific literature, and see what similarities came across with his issue and what the science had to say about it. And with the science, personal trainers, anyone who's not a student does not have access to all that knowledge, that whole reference database which is like issue in, you know, training industry. We can talk about that later, but I was able to look at it and say, oh, came across an article reference, uh, acromioclavicular impingement.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, now I can't diagnose him saying that was it, but after 90 degrees, he had the pain approaching 120 degrees. So yes, there are ways to, to establish that. And then, you know, taking that, writing it down for the next client, it comes across. Okay. Maybe there are similarities across society. They do exist. And that back person,
0: course. back to a healthcare professional for a diagnosis.
1: Correct. Then so I, said, I, I said, The next
0: back. step is, you know, as, as a very key, yes. competent trainer, you I refer them back to the primary care so that the, right. it can be effectively diagnosed. And that, that puts the period at the end of the sentence that you eloquently wrote by catching something like that, you yep. know, um, it's well said.
1: But so David, with, with the scientific literature, is that something that you source back? I mean, being a former student, do you still have access to, to Rutgers database or what What do you? Do you I see?
2: still have access to databases because I make sure that I have memberships with enough things that I can do that. Or I'll go to the library and, and reference it where I need to. Mm-hmm. Um but I try to, I try to just brush up on the stuff every once in a while. I'm not like in the depths of the research being like, Hey, you know, what's going on. What about that latest study on the, you know, female rugby players and how it affected their plantar flexion, like that, I'm not in the weeds on, but if I do see stuff, that's either like a randomized control trial or a meta-analysis or a systematic review or things like that. I'll definitely go through them and, and, and highlight those types of things. If I see certain organizations have differences in their position statements that I always want to check out, but yeah, it's not like, um, it's not anything that I'm, you know, I also personally don't advocate a bunch of trainers to run to the research articles. The fact of the matter is, is most people aren't well equipped to read research articles. I don't understand the nuances in, you know, subject size. Okay. Well, this study says that they increased their bench press by 10 pounds. Okay. Well, it was six guys. Right. Ages 20 to 24. So like, that's not a massive subset that I can rely on to say that this is something with confidence that I would move forward with. It's information. Like I think, um, you know, one of my, uh, one of my friends and someone I met through Rutgers, uh, Dr. Brittany Bazzini, She said it very, very well when we did a podcast in the past, and that was that every research study tells you information that they learned at that lab with those set of people. Mm -hmm. That's it. It doesn't tell a story. It tells one tiny tidbit of what it is. So it doesn't mean that it's invaluable. It just means that you have to take it with the consideration of the context of all this other kind of stuff taken into consideration. Like right. a 100 year generational type of trial is very, very different in weight versus the 10 people that did, you know,
0: an eight week
2: reflection to see how hypertrophy happened within, you know, the radius, right? The radial muscles. So, uh, you know, I think it's that type of stuff, and the reason why I don't necessarily tell trainers immediately run to the research is to that point. Most trainers will read the headline and they'll go off of that. They'll read the abstract and think that's the entire study. They will read bits and pieces of the discussion or conclusion and assume that that's exactly what it is. But the discussion and conclusion are the information and also how it's interpreted by the researchers there, not necessarily some of the nuances that are in the actual study, how it was conducted, what were the parameters, what were the variables, etc. Right. Right. So. I think it's such a nuanced thing that I wish that they would teach that a little bit more in yep. exercise science programs on how to properly read research. Cause I know from my experience, that wasn't really taught, which I don't think if you were to ask me between the practicality of training or and how to read research, I think I would definitely choose the practicality yes. of training and working with individuals. But I think that that's an area that's missing. So it's almost, it's tough to ask someone to decipher something that, is never gotten trained foreign language to them and they haven't had any formal training on. Which right. is where a lot of, of misinformation happens and misconceptions happen by people saying, Oh, well, did you see this thing from this person? Like we're in a very microwave society where people want this thing now. Very quickly. I want this information immediately. And I want you to digest to me to be very fast. So I always refer people to go to different sites and different individuals that have these different setups. Like Lane Norton has a you know a system that he sells that goes through Um, I believe it's called REPS, where they go through the research and they will digest it down and help give you a cliff notes version of what some of these studies say. Or MASS that's done by Greg Knuckles and I believe Eric Trexler, Mm -hmm. where they go through the research studies and they pull a bunch. And based off of these subsets of studies, here's an article that's about 7,000 to 10,000 words explaining the differences between sarcoplasmic and myofibular hypertrophy and what the research actually says as a whole based on these things. So I think that as coaches there are services out there that you can sign up for and pay for that'll give you that research-based information without you trying to do it yourself and go through the weeds.
1: Yeah, so just just to that you considering that the personal trainer holds a bachelor's degree like yourself, correct? You have a bachelor's degree in exercise science? Yep. Beyond that, no other formal education, but nope. you speak as you have as you hold a master's degree because you're saying, look at the limitations and look at what the literature is saying. In undergrad, that was never taught. Even for myself, that was never taught until the master's level. So I had a professor who said, we're gonna hold journal club meetings every week and we're gonna discuss what the article means to that specific population. And that's something that I'm trying to do as an educator um, for an undergraduate course, leadership and anaerobic exercise, mm-hmm. is to have a research article presentation where each group participates, breaks down an article, and it's in the course of a semester, so it's very limited time with other assignments and obligations. Mm-hmm. But so they're exposed to just what that one thing may say about the trap bar deadlift versus the barbell deadlift yep. in terms of kinematics. And I think it's a very good intro- basic introduction because it was never done for me in undergrad. You know, be- being thrown into a master's degree, you're just said here, read research, and that's it.
0: Yeah. Well, riddle me this, guys. To my ear. It, um it almost feels cuz the last thing we need is more stratification but to my ear I'm hearing it would be look you, you as you said you could take a weekend course and out boom you're you're a personal trainer mm-hmm. um and that's vastly different from what you are and that's vastly different from what Michael is and, and sure. Michael has become so it almost seems to me without breaking any bridges there needs to be a significant differentiation in the public's understanding of what a personal trainer is versus it goes back to exercise science and physiology, defining itself in such a way and placing it in a context that you realize there is a difference in educational level, in knowledge, in technique, in my profession you, you have I- certified occupational therapy assistants right that's that's a uh associate's degree i know some phenomenal clinicians who are certified occupational therapy assistants who out clinician some full otrs um so it's not about the title but it, it, the reality is the one is an associate's the other is a master's or or, or doctoral sure. so should should there be conversationally out in the public in social media, in outlets where people are reading casually understand that when you hire at this level, this is typically painting in broad strokes, what you're going to receive. And at this level, something else.
2: I, I, I agree with that. I I think that there should be, I don't think it should be too um, big on leaps and bounds between what those things are. And I think it's actually a multi-layered, um, discussion on that one question, which is why I think it's a really good question. Um, So let me start it off with just the quick, easy part to what you mentioned, which is what I was going to say is I've met people with a master's degree that aren't worth any time of working with anyone because they're great with the book and taking the test. They're horrendous. Correct. with trying to communicate and work with an individual face-to-face. That's number one. And let me put the disclaimer, Mike is not that person that I'm discussing. And, um,
0: can I just offer this up, and then I'll shut up? I really will. Sure, sure. When I went through my own academic training, my mentor, who is now my friend, said, you are going to be – you are not a student. You, you pull good grades, but this is not what you do well if it was a paying job. But you're going to be one of those ones that is going to hit the ground running and soar because you have everything else that it takes. So I know exactly – the guy who graduated at the top of my cohort can't – can't get a job. I keep telling them, please do research. It's what you do. Yeah,
2: Yeah. exactly. Like there are specialties of what people do. And, and to that, like, I think that's (laughs) one of the things. So like the level of education isn't necessarily correlated to quality of what you're going to get, et cetera. (laughs) And I've had that conversation with um, both my mentors who asked me about why I haven't gone for a master's degree, which they both knew the answer before they asked it. They just wanted to hear it, which was I don't get paid any differently with a master's degree versus a bachelor's. You know, like my rate is my rate. And am I going to spend another $30,000, $40,000 to get a master's degree so that I have that? If it's not going to change my career or w- who I work with, et cetera, that's probably thing. not, but it's yeah. not worth the investment for me at that time. But with people that get a master's degree, I'm never going to hold it against them to, to increase your education and do those different things. So it definitely opens certain doors for what you do. Definitely. Now what I would say is when it comes to the, the differences from the consumer market, it is the issue starts at commercial fitness. And commercial fitness isn't the culprit, but it starts with commercial fitness. And that is that no matter what someone is when they're in the facility, the rate is the same. You may have like a master trainer versus the regular coach that's on staff, but for the most part, the rate is about the same. And I think that when it comes to independent coaches, a lot of coaches are nervous to charge what they are worth or what their value is because they're afraid someone's not going to pay it. And they're afraid that they can't convince someone that that is the value for what it is. Mm -hmm. Like I remember early on in my career when I, um, when I was at crunch fitness, which is after I graduated, I was a fitness manager at crunch fitness in Wayne, New Jersey. And I remember, um, I was a master trainer there while I was a fitness manager and someone asked and they said, well, your rate is $10 more versus somebody else. Like, you know, why is it $10 more? And my blunt answer at that time, which probably could have been more eloquent, but my blunt answer at that time was I've invested four years and $80,000 in an exercise science degree that differentiates me from these other people who are training alongside. That's why it's $10 more,
0: Right.
2: right? So what I think to that is, you know, it's important that, you know, when I teach coaches about creating their pricing around training, it's understanding what's the market value now, because gyms do market research on what someone's willing to pay for personal training and what the service is worth, et cetera. And then you want to look at what are the other amenities or attributes that you bring to the table that differentiate you from that. So, you know, is it that someone's training in your private facility? Is it that you are keeping it as a one-on-one situation for them? Are you going to them? Are they coming to you? What's your education level? What's the specificity of your niche on who you work with, right? Mm -hmm. It's no different than if you can be a surgeon or you could be, you know, a pediatric brain surgeon. There's right. a difference between those things and specificity. So one is clearly, you know, more expensive than the other. But you know, I think for for as coaches, there's not a lot of education around that on the business end of it.
1: Mm-hmm. And when
2: I talk about the business end of it, the 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 quick pullback from coaches is I don't like sales, or you know, they think of the social media, Instagram, you know, have private jets kind of coach, right. That's not at all what I'm, I want you to get paid what you're worth, right? I just want you to be able to make an honest living doing what you're doing and charging the right amount and knowing you're charging an honest amount. That's fair for you and the individual that you're working with. So I think it has to do with a lot of that education as well, which for coaches, there's not a lot of business education behind that on how to navigate that space. You know, when it comes to therapies, et cetera, like physical therapy, occupational therapy, most of those prices are set or they're dictated by insurance on here's Correct. what happens here. So you don't have to really worry about that as much Correct. with personal trainers. It might be a little bit different. And I think the consumer market from a commercial level really distorts it some. But then ultimately the coaches don't know how to distinguish what their difference in value is versus other people. So like my rate is higher than a lot of people in, in my area. Um, It's only because I take on a handful of clients because I consult for facilities and I do a lot of work for men's health, et cetera. So I only take on a handful of clients that live within the very, very immediate area. And, you know, when someone says, Hey, you know, this is relatively more expensive than other people, I Just, I let them know. I know it is, right? What's up? Continue. But I was going to say, but I'm also, you know, my, my degree is what it is. I've had, you know, a lot of client success and client satisfaction over the years based off of what I've done. I only work with a handful of people for specific reasons. I'm one of seven people on the advisory board for men's health magazine in regards to training, like that's not your normal coach in this area. Right. So it's going to be a little more expensive. Like the easy thing I try to tell coaches when they go traveling to clients for private training is, you know, you can eat at a restaurant and eat from a chef or you can have a chef come to your house and cook for you. What's more expensive? Right. The private chef. Because they're coming to you to cook you your meal. So why would you charge the same rate that LA Fitness is charging when you're driving to someone's house with dumbbells to work with just them in their home space? It's a customized curated experience. Correct. So you have to be confident enough that you can charge more for that because of what it is. But again, I think that's some of the the education around just business management that a lot of coaches don't get that I wish they had and would probably diminish the attrition that we see within the field of having 90% of coaches quit within their first year to vastly diminishing that down so that we have people that know they can make a sustainable living and know what their worth is and know what the value is and know how to navigate it.
1: Correct. Well, first off, I I like to say how professional you are with the business aspect end of this posting multiple uh, sources and streams where you provide business information. I appreciate that being on your last call about a month and a half, two months ago before the new year. So always, always great to hear from you from the business end, but going back to your time at crunch fitness and the different pay rates, you were paid based off your knowledge. Yes. $10 more. Um, when I was at Hackensack, we fitness and wellness, there was different tiers of trainers, one, two, and three respectively. And the only difference in that was the number of hours you worked. Yeah. I mean, by no means was I the smartest trainer there. I'm not saying that. But I'm able to recognize things based off my current studies. And because I've only worked, you know, twenty hours a week, it was part-time, I was a tier one trainer.
0: Hmm. And so it wasn't based on skill set, it was based on hours, which is asinine.
1: Exactly. So that commercialized gym setting does have to change that paradigm, which it's based on a skill set. And I think that'll also help with the clients recognizing okay. They have this knowledge. Let me work with them because they'll be able to, to not treat, but work around my ailments.
2: But it only changes if we change it.
1: Yes. Correct.
2: So the only reason it changes if we change it is because to that point, like we need to recognize as professionals, if you're going into a setting, like there shouldn't, it. there's two ways to look at it. Either if you're going to go working in commercial fitness, then you have to look at it and go, okay, Well, I can either have a doctorate in exercise science or take a weekend certification and I get paid the same. Which one's easier to do? Weekend certification. I'll save myself years and tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars by not doing the continuing education that you want to, right? Or if you are a higher education coach that's not going to get some of those other things and perks because of what you've done in your background, then you want to find a facility that does. And if you can't find a facility that does – then you have to know how to navigate it on your own so that you can sustain your business because there are people out there that value that, that want the best and want someone who knows what they're talking about and can navigate that. There are people that also don't care what the background is. They just want a coach. doesn't matter if you charge 20 bucks and you'll train me in the park with resistance bands. I just want a coach because they don't also understand the consumer market in the same way that there are people that will go to Whole Foods and buy you know, a ribeye once a week, twice a week. And there are people who go to McDonald's four times a week because they, from a consumer perspective, they don't care about the nuanced things as much as we may. But I do think it's up to us as individuals to understand that if I'm not being treated the way that I should be in a situation, I need to either identify it and do something about it. Or if I don't, then I'm complicit with the system that's happening already. Correct. So I think that's a big distinction that has to happen is only we can fix that because gyms won't fix it until we start to make those adjustments.
0: I agree. I mean, so it's the oldest expression lately, you know, in the, in the mental health field, self advocate. If, if I don't advocate for myself as a professional, who is no one, Correct. that's my job. You know, we're all adults here. So yes, I completely agree with you. Um, And you're right. I mean, as a clinician, I can tell you that whole I've been I've been a personal trainer in the past. And now I'm a clinician. And you're right that angst of, you know, how do I validate myself and my fee is completely out of the equation. in this because it's predetermined by Medicare, Medicaid and private insurers. Sure. Um, It it is what it is. And it doesn't even come up as a talking point. Um, And then of course, your credentials and your licensure backs up why you're there to begin with. So it's a completely different paradigm. So why can't that happen with training? This is right? Like, this is like, point, I think, Looking into this world, which honestly is new to me, it's really it's it's from my, exactly. my 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 relationship with Michael. I'm like, God, it's so muddy. Like everything just needs clarification. Who are you? What are you? Literally, those two things alone would just clarify so much. Um, yes, it was. And if you look at this, and this is coming from from somebody who's been a trainer and now is a clinician. So sure. if I look at it and go, holy jeez, that's messy. Can you imagine your average consumer? And so how are they supposed to navigate this? Which leads me to my next question. If you are on the consumer end of this, because I I want the people to listen to you who, who and me, and, and Michael, I've been on all sides of this. What do you think? From Because you're a practical guy. If you were a complete novice and you you just know that you're ready to make substantive changes in your life, you know, for whatever reason, what's the best? I always look at credentials. We talked about that, but knowing that, you know, social media is what it is. And it's never going to go anywhere. If you're ready to do something and make a lifestyle change, where, where do you see, what do you see as the best methodology for getting that done and not winding up with a, a, let's just say a person who's really a dilettante versus somebody who's like us was really passionate sure so I, I think to that it's a good
2: question and i think that as a consumer there's a couple of things that are important to recognize number 1 does this person have a track record of safe and effective results keywords being safe and effective Boom. like can they get results across the board and can they get them across the board with many many different people not just oh i work with just 20 year old girls or i just train overweight individuals that are in this protocol, whatever, like not that. But is this person going to be able to do that next? Like what I do as a coach is I, and this could be my, my secret to selling training, but it's, it's just like, I think every coach should do this. I tell every person that asks me about training, what are the things they should look for in a trainer, whether they choose me or not, whether you choose to work with me or not, here's the things you should be looking for in a coach. They're going to help make sure they're supportive to you. So as a consumer, you should be looking for someone that aligns with you from the health perspective of what their idea of health and wellness is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you want someone that's looking out for your longevity, not just your acute lifestyle. So is that person trying to make you the best version of yourself? Not now, but 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the road. Brilliant. I would look for a coach to trying to help make sure that you're building habits Through this process and behaviors versus just immediate you know hey let's do a quick boot camp and call it a day Mm -hmm. um that's number two and then number three is i want someone who's going to educate me going to a personal trainer is going to someone who is going to educate you on health and wellness and how it's most effective for you because the fact of the matter is is you can do a general workout if you wanted a general workout buy a men's health magazine or a muscle and fitness rip out one of the free ones that I wrote and just use that forever. But that's not gonna get you the best results. So my job as a coach is to show you not the entire gym, but the 5% of the gym that you can use most effectively to get the results that you're looking for. And I always tell clients after six months of working with me, if uh, there's only three reasons you should ever wanna, there's three things that shouldn't happen. Number one is you shouldn't feel like you don't know what you're doing after six months. I should have taught you the whys behind everything. Like I always tell coaches, most trainers give recipes and we've all downloaded recipes online to cook things. Would you consider yourself a chef?
0: Absolutely not. No,
2: My job is to teach you how to cook, that no matter what's in the pantry, you can make a good meal with what you're doing. That's my job in this role. So what I would say is if someone... Is working with me six months down the road, it should either be one, because they want the appointment first thing in the morning and they want to make sure they have someone's keeping them accountable. Right. Two, because I'm the best workout partner they've ever had. I push them when they need to. I spot them when they need to. I interchange the weights. I make it a very efficient workout. Or three, in a joking way, obviously that i'm just so damn good looking and charming that you want to spend money to see me 3 times why are we going If it's not for those 3 reasons right. then i have failed you as a coach i agree I didn't- teach you why we're doing what we're doing. I didn't teach you why we did that superset the way we did or why we chose chest supported rows over a bent over row with a barbell or why we decided to do this rep scheme and this volume in this rest, rest period versus other ones that are readily available to you. So it's my job to try and decipher the stuff down so that you know what's effectively applicable to you, mm-hmm. not what can work for everybody. Because the f- hard fact of fitness is that you want to tell clients. This is not one size fits all. And it's not like a, hey, this one thing works. It's inherently just very different for everyone. Some people can eat pizza every single day and have a six pack. Some people can eat pizza once and it makes them feel bloated and inflamed for the rest of the week. Everyone is different. Everyone's race is different. And when race, I mean like the running race, not like ethnicity race. But everyone's journey is different. So because of that, I need to try and customize it to who you are. I'm not worried about what other people saw. So-and-so lost this much weight intermittent fasting. This person lost this much weight doing keto. This person did this other diet that's going on. How is it going to be effective for you? Because what they did for them doesn't affect you. So my job is to look through your lens. How do I look through your lens and try and troubleshoot what we're doing? Because what the rest of the world does has no effect on if it's working for you in a safe and effective way. Two keywords: safe and effective.
0: I love you beginning with that. We want to be consistent
2: and that means by keeping you safe and we want to do things efficiently because I'm not trying to waste your time or mine. So I think if we can do all those things, then we put everyone in a better scenario
0: for what the profession actually is.
1: Yeah. I think that was
0: genius and could not possibly be improved on David.
1: And and just for the record, if if I wasn't a personal trainer in the industry, I'd purchase training from you just for your last comment uh, because of your looks. Thank you, man.
0: I appreciate that. <laughs> I can't keep my hair the way you do, Mike. But you know, <laughs> you I work with what I work with, A few people. No, actually, you know what's nice as as the senior guy in at the table. Um, I, I said this. I think Michael to you last night over dinner. When you hear this, your words coming out of other people's mouths, then it's a universal truth. Mm-hmm. And I heard a lot of what I have said over the years certainly about safety, certainly about if you spend time with me and you still don't know what you're doing, I fail, all of that. That is why I applaud it. It is such such a well-put, cogent way of just summarizing my question, and the answer was brilliant. So thank you for that. I appreciate that. No, it was just flawless. Michael, do you have any other questions for David?
1: Um, no, but I love how you explained, uh, for, the, for the client purposes, right, seeing what, what can come from you yourself, those three bullet points that you hit on the last one, more so the first two, but yeah, you know, what the value you bring to the table is, but why
0: something as consumers, um, I would hope, you know, you don't lunge at a house. You don't lunge at a high ticket item. You don't lunge at a car. I mean, you do, as you said, do some due diligence, but I, I think what you said and how you summarize your value and I, I self-advocate, um, is critical on the part of everybody who's going to be in this industry whether it's at the consumer you know the the fitness level or or healthcare um you need to be able to back up comfortably why you're doing what you're doing and what your fees are and so forth um but i think it's also now the responsibility of the consumer to to really have that conversation and if somebody shuffled their feet and went well you know seemed like the right number no you know, I would, I would buy, you know, you know what I'm saying? Your services, that you yeah. need, I would buy it. You've made sense. Well, I appreciate that. And what I would say is to the, to the last point, kind of like, um, what you
2: alluded to before, and I'm glad you, you kind of brought it up again, because it was something I wanted to ask about when I said, but why isn't it that way before is <clears throat> like you said for therapists, the rate is set. Here's what it is. It is what it is. Like either you're going to do the therapy or you're not going to do the therapy, Right. Right. My personal opinion on this, and this comes from, I, it might be from a confidence of doing it enough times and seeing it in in heavy repetitions, because a lot of my career was as a fitness manager or doing the assessments and selling the personal training and helping teach coaches then how to sell personal training. So like in my largest facility, when I was with Equinox, um, overseeing Equinox Sport Club on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, I had 71, 72 coaches mm-hmm. on staff that I was teaching how to sell and train and manage these things and really not teaching them everything. I was helping teach the gaps that were in their specific businesses. But what I, my question with that is like, I wish coaches had more confidence to say, this is the rate, this is what the market says. Like no matter what facility you go to in the area, they're going to charge $70 an hour. Correct. That's how much my training is. But it's the there's not enough confidence or ownership behind that Correct. to say that. Like that's what I do wish. I do wish that it was just a set thing so coaches can lean on that and go, Well, that's just that's the price. Right. But they're not because so many coaches are unsure about how to navigate those waters. Yeah. And because of that, they're willing to discount on themselves and say, No, I'll I'll take a, a lower cut. I'll only charge this because I don't I don't know if they'll pay x amount for training well if they don't value you then how is that relationship even on any kind of way correct like it's a service that we're trying to provide and i think that ultimately the ownership comes down to the coach to know here's what the rate here's what the market dictates here's how much i'm going to charge that's what the market said this is what the rate is Yeah. either you want to train with me and if you don't i totally understand i wish you the best of luck in the future but this is what the rate is yeah and I wish more coaches felt that way and were confident enough to stick their feet in the sand, yeah. and be, be comfortable within that. But it's just simply something that hasn't happened to this point, especially from my experience in the industry.
0: I agree yeah, with I think you. That was-
1: That's beautifully said. Yeah.
2: The
0: flip side, too, is that so, ma- so many, even on my side of this and the healthcare side of this, are so flippant with their health. You know, none of us came out of a box knowing how to keep ourselves well and fit, and do the things that we do and train the way we train. Or, you know, I, I keep telling everybody, you get one of these, mm-hmm. you know, and every single person who wants to stay well should be buying training sessions from a qualified trainer, so you never have to see me. Yeah, you know what I, I mean. Um, the, it's 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 a it's a bit of a conundrum where they think, okay, I bought my gym membership. Well, that's the beginning.
1: <laughs> it's a good first step. It's, you
0: know, again, I love yeah. your allusion. If you stick me in an executive kitchen and go go, I'd be like, go where? Do what? <laughs> I got nothing. You know, 100%. no. Yeah. Most
1: people are scared to venture out when they are in that fitness setting to new machines, new equipment, new tools. It's the standardized. You know, I go on the treadmill because it's common, and I'll go on the elliptical because it's the next common thing, and right. maybe I'll do an incline seated chest press because. Hey, we're pushing moving forward society, but you know, it's the most common, uh, machine based tool to use, which so is really interesting.
0: So David, I'm going to, I'm going to give you the, the reins to ring us out. What, what I leave it in your hands. What would you, what would you love to say? You probably said it before, but it's absolutely no doubt worth repeating or something new and fresh, but ring us out. What would you, what would you like to end on? Um, no
2: pressure. No, it's good. My head immediately goes to one place. And I think it's very common in any of the disciplines in what we do, whether it's healthcare professions or training profession or any of that kind of stuff that we're very, very quick to put the spotlight outward instead of shining it inward. Mm. So we're very quick to say, oh, this person didn't do their homework for their training, or they didn't do the extra things in their rehab, or they didn't pay attention to this, or they didn't continue on, or they didn't do whatever like that. And I think it's very easy to point fingers and it's more difficult to point thumbs. So mm. what do we do as a profession that didn't necessarily get that person where they where they should have been? Mm. What didn't we communicate in the way that we could have that would have put them on a different path? What educational compliments could we have provided to that person to let them have the information and know that with confidence that I'm leaving the conversation with everything I could have done mm-hmm. to make sure that they knew what was available to them. And I think that, Across the board, with any of these professions, we do a, a we're quick to shine the spotlight out and say what someone else didn't do, but we're very hesitant to be introspective on what could I have done differently, what could have I have changed, how can I complement my education in these things moving forward? Mm-hmm. That's going to help people, you know, beyond today. Uh, I see that in education because most coaches are doing things they find fun versus things that are complementary to the client bases they see. Like, oh, let me do this power training, whatever type of certification to learn this. OK, well, if your client base is generally you know general population ages 45 to 65, you're going to be doing powerful movements because any age should be doing powerful movements. But power is relative and power for Grandma Betty is different for the power of a 25-year-old elite NFL player. So do you need that course to do that? I'm never going to tell someone to not do education because they want mm-hmm. to. But you should be able to decipher between what's the education I'm doing that I like just because it's fun and what's the education I'm doing to expand my business into an area that's more well-rounded for the people that I'm seeing on a daily basis. Love it. So what I would say is I think that more of us within these areas need to shine the spotlight inward. If a client doesn't continue with me, I always ask myself what I could have done to better educate that person or better navigate the waters with them, et cetera. Mm -hmm. What goals could I've continued to add on for them to let them see that this is a long path in training versus just an intermittent rest stop that we're trying to get to in between. Like there, I think what I would ask people to do is just look inward. What can I do to fix this? Because we're very quick to blame. We're very hesitant to look inward at what we're doing. So I challenge anyone that is a consumer, that is a coach, that is a therapist, that is a healthcare professional, that is anyone that helps other people in their lives, look inward and see what are the one or two things that I can fix or change or alter within my communication, my uh, approach, or my general demeanor around this, that would ultimately make me a more effective person in what I do for the people that look to me for help.
1: Very well said. Uh, can you add on to that, the, David? Um, and- this was a beautiful discussion and I would love to have you back on at some point in the future, discuss a little bit more about resistance training and then exercise selection for these various populations. Sure. Uh, but in an I of time, I think let's leave it here. And what are the best methods for uh, the viewers to reach out to you, connect with you beyond the, beyond this podcast?
2: Um, they can follow me on Instagram at David Ote fit. Um, They can uh, check out my website at otayfitness.com. I train privately in Essex County, New Jersey. So, you know, Um, and I do a lot of work for Men's Health. So if anyone ever wants to reach out, I'm, I'm more than willing to communicate, shoot me a message, send me an email. I'm happy to answer as many questions as I can. And if I can't, I will send you to the right person to answer that question.